Adoniram Judson was one of the first American missionaries to be sent overseas in the 1800s. He would serve 40 years in a country then known as Burma, now today Myanmar. And this man was an intense man when he wrote a letter to his future father-in-law asking for his daughter Anne's hand in marriage. He said, if you grant your daughter to me in marriage, we will probably endure disaster, disease, degradation, go through hardship, suffering, and quite possibly die a painful death on the mission field. And he did what every God-fearing father would do. He said, okay, I'll pray. And oh boy, did Anne and the Judson family suffer. Uh, Anne would have three children, the first miscarried on the way to the mission field, and the next two uh, passed away before they were even one, and the third passed away after Anne herself had passed away from a bout of smallpox. Uh, Judson would lose two wives and six of his 13 children while serving 40 years on the mission field. There must have been many times where he thought about, should I just pack it up? Is it really worth it? Should I just head back home to the United States? But he had a dream that he could see the Bible translated in the native language, and his prayer was 100 converts in his lifetime as a missionary. The first few years, not a single convert. It was an unreached people group. By the end of 12 years, he had baptized 18 people. But by the time he passed away as a missionary on the field, he not only saw 100 converts, but there were over 100 churches established and 8,000 Christ followers in that country. To this day, Judson, who was under the Baptist denomination, uh, Myanmar is the third largest country of Baptists next to the United States and India. You know, it's stories like that that really get me excited. It's verses like Philippians 1, particular verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that is one of my life statements and one of my life verses. When I was at the age of 29, I just wanna share a little bit about who I am in my story. I felt called to go and plant a church in Atlanta. We didn't know a single person in Atlanta. I was a young pastor right out of seminary. I somehow kind of brainwashed through prayer and Holy Spirit five recent college grads, one of which is my wife today, uh, to come and serve, and they committed one year. And I tell you not, like, like, just like some of uh, Pastor Nick's roots, you know, just in campus ministry, we just saw a move of God. We saw miracles happen. We saw people coming to Christ. We saw college campuses just coming alive on fire for the Lord. And that would later become a multi-generational, multi-site church that I pastored for 17 years. And what's my point? I really believe that the kingdom of God is so compelling and so potent and what we see in Western Christianity today is just the shell of its former self. And so, you know, as I got to pray about what I wanted to share this week and next for today, I just wanted to share my heart, who I am, what makes my heart beat. And it's this idea that I want to call out the church and call up the church to something greater. And I believe that here in New York, New York is primed to see a move of God. And I believe that if disciples can live the way that Christ followers ought to live, that we're going to see tremendous transformation in New York City. Verse 21, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, is essentially Paul's mission statement. 
I would argue that every organization has a mission statement, and that becomes the compass, the North Star that really keeps you on focus. Why do we do the things that we do? What are we going after? I bet if I said this company's mission statement, you'd know immediately who it is, that this company through creativity, storytelling, and and technology, that they desire to make their park the happiest place on earth. And you would know that to be Disney World. Or if I said this man, his mission statement, his modus operandi was that he longed to see a world where his daughters would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And you know this man's mission statement, it belongs to Martin Luther King Jr. I think if we as Christians adopt a mission statement, I think Paul's mission statement is a pretty robust one. And so we're going to unpack that in three layers. Number one, the power behind the mission statement. Secondly, the meaning of the mission statement. And then thirdly, the origin of Paul's mission statement. So first, let's look at the power behind his mission statement. I get that in verse 18 and 19, where it says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Wow, let's unpack that. Uh, A commentator by the name of Matthew Henry, uh, he used this phrase that I've stolen, and he says, Paul believed that God was the only true alchemist. Where is the power behind our mission statement? In the alchemy of God. Do you know what alchemy is? Alchemy purports to turn one lesser, less valuable substance into something greater. The most common example would be to turn lead into gold. And we know that that's a farce. You can't do that. But the idea here is that if God is the only alchemist, Paul knew that he could turn something lesser into something more valuable. See this in two different ways. First of all, through Paul's circumstances. Where's Paul writing this letter from? He's writing this letter from jail. He doesn't get three square meals. There's no basketball court outside. He's dependent on friends to bring him anything like like extra comfort foods and clothes. I mean, it's a place filled with just like dishonor, degradation. His circumstances are not that great, but he's able to say in verse 18, yes, I will rejoice. And this is going to turn out for something far greater. If you have a mission statement that can transcend any circumstance physically on earth, you found yourself a powerful mission statement. Verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul gives the theme of the book of Philippians, rejoice again, I say rejoice. One of the reasons why I believe Christendom is so uncompelling today is because through circumstances, it's robbed Christians of their faith and their fervor. Maybe you know of, or maybe you're in a time right now where because of circumstances, it's really caused your faith to get weighed down, or as Paul later says in one of his epistles, that it's causing you to shipwreck your faith. But look at Paul's perspective, and this kind of perspective is a game changer. You know, it reminds me of a story in the Old Testament where there was a a man by the name of Joseph who was one of 12 brothers. He was the favorite child, he was the destiny child, the golden boy, and his brothers decide to sell him off into slavery. He gets falsely accused later on of rape, and he gets thrown into prison. 
And one by one, there's a series of events in which you look at Joseph's life and you're like, what is going on? He was the one who was supposed to do great things for God. He was favored. At the tail end, little did he know that through these series of negative events, he gets exalted to second in charge next to Pharaoh, and he ends up during a global famine saving his entire people, the Israelites. And as he's reconciling with his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, he looks back and he's processed his life. And this is incredible perspective. He tells his family, well, what you thought you meant for evil, God meant for my good. He sees everything through the lens of, and God works out the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Time after time again, when we're able to see that hardship is simply a tool for the alchemy of God to turn something into something more valuable, Daniel and his teenage buddies, when they were threatened, hey, bow down before this golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar, or we're going to throw you into a fire. What did they say? They said, well, we believe our God will save us. But then I love this line in Daniel 3. They said, but even if. Even if he doesn't save us, God is worthy and we will not bow before an idol. And sure enough, they get thrown in the fiery furnace and then you see a fourth person. It's debatable, an angel or maybe a representation of Jesus himself. But this, there's basically, they're unscathed because saints had the perspective that we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul's hit rock bottom but he understands the alchemy of God that as he gives himself to living for Christ, he believes that God is doing something better and God is bringing something more valuable about his life. Even previously in this chapter, we haven't read it, but in verse 12, he says the same sentiment. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, being thrown into prison, has really served to advance the gospel. That's like jaw-dropping, We would be complaining. I would be complaining. Why am I in jail? I signed up. I said I'd serve you, Lord. Why is all of this stuff happening? And he knew and trusted God is working this out for my good. And I'm still going to bank my faith in my life that if I live for Christ, that he will turn this into gold. I see this secondly also, not only in our circumstances, but in our sanctification which is a souped-up word for just becoming more like Christ. If you follow with me in verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I underline it, bolded that word. Every other time in the New Testament that word is translated, it's translated as salvation. Now, was it that Paul wasn't spiritually saved? No, we know on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, that he was indeed saved spiritually. Is he talking about deliverance and salvation from physical circumstances? No, I don't think so. Because immediately after he says, whether I live or whether I die. This word, salvation, deliverance, it's not talking about something in the past, but it has a futuristic tense. And he's saying, God is working out my salvation. Paul doesn't think, God, save me from this situation. Paul is saying, save me for something greater. 
And Paul became more humble. Paul became Christ-like. Paul became more and more like Christ, even through his sufferings, because he believed that God was the alchemist. And even in his sanctification, that he was becoming more like Jesus. Notice in verse 19 that Paul thought God would supply his every need. That idea, it's also found, Paul writes in Galatians 3.5, in a very similar context, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit, literally saying is supplying the Spirit, ongoing, over and over again, it's not a one-time shot or deal, but Paul believes that even in this circumstance and even in his sanctification, God is ongoing supplying the Holy Spirit so that he would become more like Christ. Um, There was a painting uh, attributed to Leonardo da Vinci, and it was one of his last paintings, and it was called the Salvatore Mundi, Savior of the World. It was found in 2008, and there was great debate over whether it was an original. It sold for over $1,000, A few years later, it was presented at the National Gallery in London, and then they decided to uh, hand it off and commission this to be restored by Diane Modestin at NYU. And a few years later, it sold for $450 million. And as you can see through the restoration, there was a whole world of difference between what was once first discovered And then when it was finally curated and sanctified, it became something beautiful and of far greater worth. I think that's a picture of what our God does. Some of us may feel like, man, I've been dealt a bad hand. How's it affecting your faith? If your mission statement does not allow you to transcend every circumstance and be filled with joy, rejoice in the Lord again, I say always rejoice, then I would say it might be a subpar mission statement. But Paul knew and the power behind why he could say what he said and why he could do what he did was he truly believed that in all things, it was far superior and greater for him to place his hope and faith in God. And God would not disappoint. Sorry, my voice is going a little bit. It was a rough week, but praise God, I'm here. Um, Secondly, let's unpack. Let's unpack the meaning of this mission statement. Notice the word for in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I were to ask you to fill in the blank for Sal... For Susie, to live is blank. We may be tempted to say my job. We may be tempted to say my family, my 401k, my Roth IRA. But Paul says the meaning of his mission statement is wrapped up in, for me, Christ. And what that means is three things. Number one, Paul loved Jesus supremely. He loved Jesus supremely. I played a little bit of sports in high school, believe it or not. Uh, I played basketball and that was my favorite sport. In the last two years of high school, I managed to make the varsity team. Uh, But first two years of high school, I was really just so frustrated because I was relegated to JV. 
Nothing wrong with JV, but if you know what JV means, it means junior varsity. And I can't tell you the world of difference between playing junior varsity, where nobody watches your game, to when the pep band comes and thousands of people fill the gym and you're finally on varsity. And I say that because Paul believed that everything paled in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing and loving Jesus supremely. Many people in the last two years since my family uprooted from Atlanta to come up to New York City to receive a ministry call, many, many people have constantly asked the same question. Everyone's leaving New York, bro. Didn't you hear about the pandemic? Why are you bringing a family of five into New York City? And we just felt so compelled, similar to 20 years ago, when we felt called to Atlanta, not knowing up from down, not having a penny in our back pocket, that God was calling us into New York to see a wave of transformation. If New York is indeed strategically where culture in the Western Hemisphere is created, if you can impact Christians in New York City, you are changing the world. And I believe that in the midst of this secularism and what New York represents in terms of everything is against Christianity, I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And I long to see people who love Jesus supremely. Did it mean that Paul had no other relationships? He did. But in comparison to every relationship, in comparison to later, we'll see his just resume and all of his status and accomplishments. He said, all of this is nothing because my love for Jesus and what he has done for me is varsity. If I can just blitz through, I just want to show you it's consistent with everything he says in this letter. Previous in to this passage, in verse 13, he says, my imprisonment is for Christ. Then there's an argument in verse 15 to 18, and people are saying, well, these people are preaching Jesus out of this motive. These people are preaching for other motives. And he said, hey, let's, let's, that's secondary. What only matters is Jesus is being proclaimed. And in this passage that we read, in verse 20, he says, I just want Christ to be honored in my body, regardless of whether I live or whether I die. Then later in verse 23, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. See, Paul was kind of conflicted here. The word depart, it's this imagery that conjures up a picture of a ship that is weighed down and docked at a station. And the ship longs to do what it was created to do, to be undocked and to just sail off into the sea. And Paul was like, I was created and I just want to drift off and I want to be with Jesus for all of eternity. And that, humanly speaking, would be far greater. But he said, no, it's better that I live for Christ now. And he said, I love Jesus with all of my heart. Looking back, even at my own life, I would say, There's a lot of things I've done in ministry. But if there's one thing I want to be defined by, there's a man that loved Jesus supremely. Paul never lost sense of how worthy Jesus was. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 7, 
and says, but whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All these things are good, but they're loss. And just in case we didn't hear him the first time, he says immediately in the next verse, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Then a third time, as we continue verse eight, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That word rubbish can be translated as dung, or you may have another four-letter word that you want to substitute. But the idea being here, what does it mean to love Jesus supremely? Paul, remember, was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was morally superior. He had the Bible knowledge down pat. But he staked everything on, imagine this, he had a ledger in life. On one side, it was subtitled, loss, and he wrote down all of his accomplishments and everything that he had amassed on earth. And then on the other side, he put gain, and there was only one word, Christ. That when you get to a point where all things, it's not about these are bad things. What does Jesus mean when he says in Luke 14, 26, he says, unless you hate your mother and father, you can have nothing to do with me and cannot follow me. He's not talking literally, he's talking comparatively. In comparison to how much you love your parents, in comparison to all the knowledge and all the titles that you can amass in this world, Paul says it's loss, it's dung, it's rubbish. In comparison to Christ Jesus, my Lord and my King. You get people that that becomes their mission statement in life and you're going to see revival in our lifetime. When you love Jesus supremely, secondly, you serve Jesus completely. Let's move on in the text. In verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That that phrase fruitful labor, it has this connotation of church, local church, and ministry, and the gospel. And so what he's saying is that he has put his agenda on the back burner and he has put Christ's agenda up as the front burner. This is a man who, in the book of Acts, when he heard about the people in Jerusalem struggling, they had lost their jobs, they were undergoing financial hardship, he collects up an offering, and on his way back to Jerusalem, a prophet comes and says, Paul, whoa, if you choose to go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and bad things are going to happen to you. And without beating an eyelash, what does Paul say? Paul knew he had a mission. Paul knew he was called to serve Jesus completely. No matter what kind of suffering it entailed, he knew that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have lost sight of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Case in point, In the first 300 years of the New Testament church, do you know what the process was to get baptized? Today, it's just, "Ah, I confess my sin. I put my faith in Jesus and dunk me in some water. It took months for you to get baptized. You would have to go through weeks and weeks of catechism. You would have to go to a series of exorcism and have demons cast out because your life in the flesh, certainly that there were some negative influences along the way. 
And then finally, on the day of baptism, you'd have to know, understand what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a disciple maker. And then they would finally bring you down to a body of water. You would disrobe, and then they would dunk you. They would pray. Elders would lay hands. They would anoint you with holy oil. And then after you were baptized, just to make sure they didn't miss any demons, you'd have to go through more rounds of deliverance. I mean, they took it seriously. The same Jesus that we've encountered, disciples like Peter encountered. And the moment he experienced Jesus in a profound, true way, he said what? He bowed down in worship, and he said, I'll follow you. And this ordinary man went on to preach a sermon that even in just the span of one chapter in the book of Acts, you saw the number of New Testament believers grow from 120 to 3,000. Just an ordinary man. I'm not saying Christianity means quit your job. Some of you are like, yeah, finally. I'm not saying it would mean you literally have to leave behind your loved ones. But I'm talking again about comparatively. I think it's possible to be a professing Christian but to have never encountered Jesus in the way that he desires us to encounter. Because when you encounter him, the natural response is, I'll give my life to serve him. Whether I live or whether I die. These disciples, they left behind literally things to accomplish God's grand purpose. And it's a radical way to live. But my question is, will we live like Hebrews 11, Hall of Faith Saints? that they believed that there was something better, whether it's a heavenly Jerusalem or whether they believe simply what Paul believed as the great alchemist, as I go alongside whatever I think I'm leaving behind, God is giving me so much more. The essence of faith is if you believe that God is better and what he offers you is better than anything that we can leave behind. And the third thing behind this meaning, verse 21b, Paul looked to Jesus eternally. Do you see that little addendum? He says, to die is gain. Consider that the worst thing that can happen to us on earth ushers in the best thing that can happen for us for all of eternity. Paul was chained to Roman guards 24-7, probably in eight-hour shifts, and I'm just envisioning everything unfold. He's thinking, well, I'm here. Hey, Bill, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, Paul, if you don't shut up, I'm going to cut your head off. And Paul just kept going. And like other places, like in the book of Acts, where we learn, you know, he's like trying to evangelize to the uh, Philippian jailer. He's doing the same thing. Why? because Paul knew the earth was not his home. And he longed and he looked forward to his heavenly reality and it became the lenses through which he lived on earth. I know it's a heavy message, but let me ask you, how does your mission statement in life stack up against Paul's? Is there power behind it? Is it compelling? Do you love Jesus supremely? want to serve him completely, look to him eternally. There's one more thing I want to look at 
the origin of Paul's mission statement. Where did Paul get his mission statement? I just will read it for you, but I want to propose that Paul got his mission statement, a pretty darn good one, from Jesus himself. Jesus says in John 17, as he's praying for his disciples in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, Father, you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Point, everything Jesus did was for us. His death results in our gain. And I think for Paul, the gospel always hit home. Jesus did this for me. I see him. Now I live like Jesus. Um, I'm a son of an immigrant parents. Uh, my parents came over from Korea uh, pretty early in the 50s. And we ended up, long story, in a rural area where we were literally the only minorities in the whole town. And I grew up pretty bitter because of that. And I grew up kind of ashamed of my culture. Mom, I can't invite my friends. They'll smell like kimchi. Mom, Dad, do we have to speak Korean around the house? It's so embarrassing. But over the years, and now as a parent, I've really come to understand, not only cognitively but experientially, everything my parents did was for me. Paul understood the gospel. And even as Jesus is praying the great high priestly prayer, there's an understanding Everything Jesus did is for me. That's why Paul's response was, for me, Christ. Uh, the translation says, for me to live is Christ, but literally it says, for me, live Christ. It was black and white. To be set apart for Jesus requires a whole level of different spiritual training. But I would propose that God has brought you here into New York for such a time as this. No one comes to New York to be mediocre. But I believe God called you to New York to live as a disciple maker. And that there would be a ripple effect throughout this city to make his great name known. I just want to close with a story. Um, in 2010, I led a mission team out into the jungles and bushes of Kenya. And it was by far, I've been on many, many, many mission trips. It was by far the hardest physically. Even before we landed, uh, get this, I don't know, I, I can't remember the year exactly, but how I remember it is, there was a bombing in London. And as we were going through London, they basically took everyone's bags. And so we ended up in Kenya without any of our clothes. Not only that, but one by one, systematically, every member of this mission team, about 16, 
just got wrecked with a virus, except me. <laughs> and I mean, we had to send people home from Kenya because they were so sick. And on the last week, our missionary felt so bad for us. He's like, Matt, I've been a full-time, I, I've, I've never seen anything like this. And he said, hey, Matt, uh, you got one more day of ministry. Um, yeah, there's this village down below, and you know, this village, they literally like, chased out missionaries two years previous. They were hostile to Christianity. And he said, you want to take your team? And this kind of shows a little bit about myself. I was like, absolutely, we will go. <laughs> Love going to the hard places. It's like, maybe we can give them an experience. We can say we went where the gospel is not being preached. And we were down there in the valley, right outside of an area called Capsuar. And these warriors with pain and whatnot, and you know, they, they just gave you this blank look. And as we did our gospel presentation, nothing was happening. And I kid you not, there was a moment where I, I saw a bird just fly across the sky and I felt like it was a heavenly moment where God was saying, just go for it. And then I started preaching about the meaning of Philippians 1.21. And that day, 10 to 12 people in the tribe gave themselves to Jesus Christ. Two years later, by then it was an afterthought. I'm back in the States. I run into this missionary. He says, first thing he says is, Matt, you will not believe this. That place where you guys did a crusade, there is now a church down at that village. And I just got on my knees and just thanked the Lord. There wasn't anything super spiritual about what we did. But one of the reasons why this is one of my life verses is, with all of my heart, I want to live loving Jesus supremely and serving him completely and looking eternally, believing and trusting that whatever we leave behind, God more than gives us gain here on earth and in the life to come. And if there's anything you're like resonating and like, yeah, I get it, I get it, but I don't feel it. If there's something in your life preventing you from experiencing Paul's mission statement, the power behind it, the joy behind it, the meaning of it, and living in a way that glorifies God, maybe we can come before the Lord right now and just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. But this is my prayer for this church. I think you have such a world of potential and a platform here in New York like none other. But the question is, how will we live? Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray.